Right, so welcome everybody. I think this is exciting to have a Sydney Ideas out here at Westmead. Uh, you know, it's great to have them on the main campus, but where are the, Where do we provide the healthcare from? Well, this is the biggest healthcare campus in, in the country. So leave it, Westmead's the biggest hospital in Australia. We're co-located with a major children's hospital. Also on this campus, we have a major psychiatric hospital, and we have three large research institutes. So it's a, it's a huge amalgamation of health, research, expertise, and increasingly community involvement. And for those of you who don't know, uh, the, um, the government's just about to spend a billion dollars uh, in upgrading from the Westmead Hospital, Leave it Westmead and the Children's Hospital, because it's substantially newer. So there's a billion dollar investment going into this campus over the next few years. A major new uh, uh, clinical services building, actually in the, where the car park is behind us here. The car park goes, the helipad goes big new building, an innovation hub from the University of Sydney, a substantial increase in the university's footprint on this campus. Uh, we're going to have um, not just health professionals, but uh, the university's plans include bringing engineers, data scientists, uh, town planners, you know, across the spectrum, so we can start seeing health in a different way health as something we have to respond to in many, many different ways. Not just doctors and nurses and other health professionals sitting in clinics and seeing patients as they develop disease, but actually now working to prevent disease. And that's why this topic tonight, obesity, diabetes and its consequences and our response to it is very relevant because as smoking rates decrease, what is now the major preventable cause of ill health in our community? It's, it's the diabetes epidemic. It's, it's the uh, consumption of high caloric foods, the lack of exercise, um, uh, the increasing body mass index, and the consequences. So I'm pleased to say we have some experts here tonight to uh, help guide us through this. This is an informal process. They're not didactic talks. They're just giving a view of uh, how things look uh, from the renal, from the liver perspective, from the endocrine perspective, but it's meant to be very interactive with the audience. So, you know, questions are welcome. Uh, we'll have multiple breaks during the night so people can sort of ask the questions that they've been thinking about for a while, maybe come up with new ideas of how to handle these problems. Um, so, Tony's briefly introduced our speakers already, but Jermaine is in the renal side of things. You always think of... Um, Obesity and diabetes, predominantly being an endocrine problem, you know, looking after diabetes. Diabetes is the major cause of chronic renal failure uh, and major cause of the need for renal transplantation. So the nephrologists, the renal specialists, end up at the really the, uh, picking up the brunt of sometimes the worst complications of, of uh, these diseases. Um, Jacob has worked for many years on diseases of the liver related to obesity and diabetes, particularly fatty liver disease. Um, uh, a paper published in uh, 2002 with Jacob, a senior author, describing why the liver becomes fatty as people become overweight. Um, uh, I think it's been cited now 1,100 times, so a really key piece of research which drove the whole field into understanding how you can get liver disease from being overweight. Uh, Wa is really in the, um, in the vice of this epidemic. He's the head of a very large endocrine department. It provides that department is required to reply, uh, provide diabetic services. Wa is involved in those services, not only in this LHD, but in the Pembroke Mountains as well. So, you know, if you're a medical professional or health professional and you've tried to book somebody in to see a diabetes specialist, you'll understand that it's not unusual to say, oh, well, that'll be six months or a year, or simply because those services are overloaded. The, the diseases we're talking about, the consequences are incredibly common. Um, uh, Jermaine will tell us a little bit, uh, has a few statistics slides for us to sort of scare us a little bit. Australia is not well-placed in terms of its response to this. The obesity rates in Australia are very high compared to other countries in the world. And I was reading um, uh, in the paper just the other day, there was something about Copenhagen, where I, I, did, I worked in Sweden for many years, so I visited Copenhagen many times. In Copenhagen, 90% of people ride bicycles to work. In Copenhagen, there are very few overweight people. Right? So part of it is the way our culture and cities have evolved. They're really quite the opposite of what we need uh, to engender good health, 
good healthy living practices. So, you know, that car that we're forced to get into every day, you know, is, is killing us in more ways than one. So, uh, with that, I'll turn over to Jermaine. And Jermaine, these will just be fairly short talks, very few slides, but, but please, if you've got some questions or, or something's not clear, just put your hand up and we'll deal with it. Thanks, Chris. Um, so, I'm just going to briefly talk about the um, obesity epidemic and also its impact on health outcomes. Um, as Chris believed, obesity is defined as abnormal and excess amount of fat accumulation in the body. This is the WHO criteria for, you know, um, as the most frequently measured obesity. Now, it may not necessarily be the most accurate and most appropriate measure of obesity in different ethnic groups. For example, in the Asian population, the threshold of being obese probably slightly lower than in a Caucasian uh, individual. Um, so when we defined of someone who's obese, by definition you have a BMI of over 30. This is a universal accepted threshold. Um, obesity is a growing problem in Australia, as you can see here. Uh, the projected uh, proportion of people who are overweight and obese in the next 20 years is over, way over 50%. Um, we have fallen just behind the United States and also the UK. Um, it is a very scary problem. Um, not only that, as you can see here, the proportion of women of being obese is going to be much higher than men um, in the next 20 years. Um, again, a scary problem. So why? Why are there some of the drivers of obesity <coughs> in our society? Um, again, as Chris alluded to, there's a policy problem here. Um, we are told not to um, catch a bus or go to train or opportunities are not there for us to, to walk or to exercise every day. We use our cars. Uh, we're also being uh, attracted to high fatty foods or high energy intake, McDonald's, um, the fast foods. <coughs> we're busy all the time. We want something that's easy, you know. Um, frozen fruits from the fridge and these are all the easy ways to, um, to make a meal during night and also the socioeconomic and also the culture um, the lack of opportunity to exercise and the environment that may not necessarily um, promoting um, um, activity and also um, um, interaction uh, with, with, um, with exercise so all of these requires a change requires an early intervention um, these are the potential complications of being obese, as um, we all know that um, one of the major uh, cause of diabetes is being obese. Um, cardiovascular disease is major complications. Um, obstructive sleep apnea, which can lead to major cardiovascular problems. Cancer risk is also increased in people who are obese, particularly for colorectal cancer and breast cancer as well. Uh, Jacob will talk more about still fatty liver disease. Um, last but not least is the renal problems. 30% um, of people with end-stage kidney disease are from diabetes, of which 20% of those are morbidly obese related to the um, diabetic complications. So all of these are major problems, uh, health problems, not just health problems, economic cost is also immense in the Australian population for those who are obese, as you can see here. Not just direct healthcare costs from uh, specialist visits or whatnot, but also indirect costs related to being absent from work, um, the, the um, government subsidies that we have to provide, all those extra um, uncountable costs related to the, um, being the um, obesity epidemic in Australia. Total cost between 2014 to 2015 is estimated at over $8,600 million. That's a huge burden on the um, economic system. So we need a change. We need time to... Uh, uh, we need action. So primary prevention is the key. We need to change policy so that we can um, eat better, exercise more. Um, not just that, but behavioural change. And there's a lot of work going on in terms of lifestyle intervention, um, the use of the apps, the use of exercise intervention. Um, before it's too late when we have to rely on interventions such as drugs and surgery. Um, so that's just a brief introduction of the problems of obesity in Australia as such. 
So, Jermaine, so a theme I think we're going to come to with all the speakers is when we hit the point of no return. So, as health professionals, we try and intervene. And obviously, in some respects, we'd like to see weight loss and uh, you know, their diet, increased exercise, increased energy expenditure. We don't achieve that very often. Um, um, kidney disease is a, a little bit unusual. We were discussing earlier, it's mainly driven by the amount of glucose in the blood. Uh, and then you get the downstream renal damage. And I guess it brings up two things. Why do some people get the kidney disease and some don't? I believe that's the case. And secondly, uh, when do you when do you sort of when does, when's it, when is the patient starting to get the point of no return? That if we get them to exercise, lose weight, bring their blood sugar down with drugs, that it's too little, too late. So, yeah. so, so that goes back to the question of early prevention. Um, there's a lot a lot of work going on in terms of um, behavioural change. I think it's always very difficult to actually change behaviour. Um, it is a, a challenging process and there's a lot of research in terms of use, using apps, um, using, um, um, I guess, some of the work that some of the team is over there is doing um, uh, advice from just, not just from the clinicians but also from general practitioners, also from community um, and also policy change, um, forcing people, not forcing people, but encouraging people to use community transport and rather than going on a on your own car or whatnot, those are the early intervention where you can actually change behaviour early before you actually turn into something that's um, not preventable or not treatable. So, so when, 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 do, when, how do you assess when that point's occurred where it's too late? Too late is when they go on dialysis, that's the problem. Okay, often, well, that's true. They're always too late when they come to see us as professional nephrologists, so when they come with a CKD of stage four or five, this is a point of no return, um, we can't really do anything. Um, using a bat, uh, in the past, dialysis uh, is, is a cachectic disease where you lose weight on dialysis. These days, 40% of our dialysis population are overweight, and it's, it's extremely difficult for us to put them on a list and transplant them because no surgeons will operate and cut open all the layers of you know, um, fat accumulation. So that's another problem. So it's not limited. So, Jermaine, when you do have the opportunity to drop in a new kidney to give the patient a renal transplant, then uh, how does lifestyle then impact on the transplant of the kidney? Yeah, Jacob might talk a little bit about what happens in the liver, but, but what happens in the kidney? So, so it will be exciting and interesting to know that. So you lose weight, kind of lose weight analysis, but as you, um, after the transplant, 30% of our patients actually put on at least <coughs> 10 kilos of fat um, immediately within the next 12 months after the transplantation. So what we've done, and actually we've been doing a project within um, our unit, is to implement an exercise program and diet change program. We have intense um, exercise training, um, dietary intervention, psychological training within the first six weeks of transplantation. It's proven to be relatively effective, but how do you actually sustain that behavioural change over a period of time? That's a challenge for us, and again, some of the work being done. Can I comment on the too late question? So I think it, it, the question is too late for what? Um, and um, for most people with obesity and diabetes, it's never too late to reverse something. Right? And so even for patients who uh, have end-stage renal uh, failure, there is still potential to prevent eye disease, for example. Right? And so um, now, obviously, the further you are up the, um, you know, down the spectrum of uh, diabetes complications, uh, more difficult is to reverse it. But even if you had diabetes for a long time, uh, you're on insulin, uh, even if you've had an infarct, there's still things that you can prevent with good diabetes management. So um, I don't think uh, you know, we should regard anybody as being too late for too, too late to be helped. Uh, there is always something that, that can be done. But you get to the point of diminishing returns when you get to you know, end-stage diabetes. So, so I'll open it up in the sector of the audience, and particularly any specific uh, questions to Jermaine on the kidney size, but, uh, kidney side of things. But um, how do you know when you're doing good? What's the measure? Is it blood glucose, or is it something else? Is it like a hemoglobin? I mean, there are many things you could potentially measure to say that you, you are intervening and doing good. Uh, so, if intervention helps, how do you measure what 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 
what are you following? Look, there, there are lots of parameters we can we can measure. I guess ultimately for the for the person with diabetes, it's quality of life, isn't it? That's uh, that's what we want. We have, want a healthy quality of life for people with diabetes. As clinicians, we have various clinical metrics we use. HbA1c is the classic uh, measurement that we, we use, but that's still only one measure, and HbA1c is not everything. Uh, we still want to look at the patient as a whole and look at how does the diabetes affect them, how can we improve their, their quality of life without necessarily, well, not just focus on the number. There are a whole other things that we need to take into account. Maybe we'll explore that a little bit later. So just opening it up to the audience, so particularly from the kidney perspective, has anybody got any questions for Jermaine? We'll have much broader discussions later. Any, anything that people are wondering about? Yeah. In terms of um, it being too late, recently there have been um, great developments in terms of type 2 diabetes drugs. Is this a positive thing um, where they, they've already hit the point where they're um, they are obese. Is it, is it bad thing having these new drugs attached to them? Yeah, I can talk about really the, the, the way out edge of drugs that I'm involved in, but Jermaine or Maya, particularly, but the, 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 the new drugs that we have at the moment, some of the new targets, uh, the, the gut hormone type targets, things like that, that make a big difference? Or? Yeah, so your question is whether it's a good thing or, or not. Um, yeah. um, well, I think to have more options is definitely a good thing. And so you find that some people respond better to one drug and not to another drug. Some people get side effects to some drugs and not to other drugs. So having choice is really important. Uh, and so what we do now is we try to tailor the treatment to the person with diabetes. So we look at more situations. So, uh, there are a whole lot of factors that we take into account, so your age, your comorbidities, whether you have other health issues, um, your... Um, capacity to pay for various sorts of uh, uh, gadgets that, that are available now is for diabetes, uh, risk of hypoglycemia in your weight. So a whole lot of things come into it. Uh, and so with some of the newer drugs, they give us other options. And so Chris alluded to GLP-1 agonists, which are new drugs that uh, it's a gut hormone-related uh, um, drug, and that um, can help people lose weight as well. In fact, one version of it's being used as a weight loss drug. Um, so that's a good option. There's also the SGLT2 inhibitors, which are a recent addition to the armamentarium of the diabetes specialist. And um, these drugs make you pass more uh, sugar to the urine. And Jermaine may, may want to talk about that because they, there's a recent study that shown that they may actually help retard the progression of kidney disease. So I think you know, more drugs is actually good, but we've got to still use them sensibly and give the right drug to the right person. So... Jermaine, the, the, in, from the nephrologist's point of view, impact of the new drugs? Yeah, look, um, there is emerging evidence showing the newer drugs, the, um, the acetylcholine and also the gut hormone, if you can, um, are beneficial, particularly for the um, CKD, the kidney disease patient. Um, the older drug, um, the old metformin, are potentially harmful to the kidney. And I should actually... Um, mention a paper that's been recently published in JAMA by our group over there. Um, we've actually looked at a comparison of all the new drugs. It's a systematic review of, um, of all the newer um, anti-diabetic <coughs> agents against um, the older agents, which showed there is some <coughs> beneficial effect um, in terms of glucose control, um, uh, not no effect on renal dysfunction, um, <coughs> certainly um, controlling of the uh, HbA1c, there's some benefit. Um, um, it's just been out, actually, in the pub. Congratulations. So, Jacob, I'm not ignoring you, but in, in level we don't have a drug, <laughs> so we have an absence of drug. Just to, just to expand on the drug story, the holy grail of pharma, of the pharmaceutical industry, is a drug that makes you safely lose weight. Because the company that gets the first drug in that class will make so much money that every other drug will power into it. <coughs> so that's the holy grail. So mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough with my colleagues at the Salk Institute in San Diego to have been on the Nature Medicine paper last year where we described a very interesting drug. Only so far in mice, and uh, uh, there's some experiments going on in non-human primates at the moment. But the way that this drug works is really intriguing. I think this is, we're going to see more drugs like this. So it's a drug that acts on the gut, and it acts on a receptor in the gut 
Uh, it's a bioacid receptor. I won't go too much into what bioacids are. But it's a way the gut knows that food's coming down. All right? So that the gut has to talk to the rest of the body. When you eat, the rest of the body's got to be prepared for all that nutrition that's about to come in. All right? The liver, the fat tissue, it all has to be signaled. And we know some of the players in that game. So this drug, which is not absorbed, acts on a receptor in your gut and tells the rest of the body you're, you've just had a huge meal. So the rest of the body responds as though you've just eaten a huge meal. And it actually tells the body to start burning energy. The big meal's coming in, you've got to make space for it. So it tells the fat tissue to do certain things, like burn fat. And it does a whole lot of other signaling. So, you, so there are ways in which you can trick the body into a response which is favourable. And at least in mice, mice on a really bad diet actually ended up lean whereas their litter mates ended up huge and fat. So, you know, I think there, uh, I think there's going to be some interesting work, and that's not the only work being done in this area, of course. There's going to be some interesting work done with really clever drugs that are actually safe and actually trick the body into losing weight by engaging the body's own mechanism. So, sorry, there were some more questions. Yes, I have a question. Um, it's kind of a two-tier question, and it's related to what you've just been saying. Um, um, one part of the question is related to um, the gut and how we know that that's in, in some degree to mental health issues. And so that's one part of the question along the lines of what you were just discussing, um, saying that these uh, assist with the gut, I imagine that they might have a, a co- um, and also a bit of an effect um, mental health issues, which could be looked into. And the second part of that question is, how do you see um, uh, the idea of doing good um, when, you, when people prioritise one area of another? So say, for example, when it comes to, like you said, big pharma, and there's um, psychiatric drugs where uh, the psychiatrist might be saying, well, look, you know, obviously you need to be happy, anxiety-free, delusion-free, all those kinds of things, and be mentally uh, well. And that's very important, of course. But then the drugs make somebody put on, say, for example, 30, 40, not just talking about 10, 15 kilos, talking about doubling their body weight. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so I'll go to the first one first, and, and uh, I'm sure Jacob has a view on this, and I'm sure the other panel members. The gut is now really very interesting because of the uh, increasing understanding of the bugs that live in the gut, uh, the metabolome. Uh, so you have this extraordinarily complex ecosystem in the gut that seems to be related to many, many things, many diseases, many aspects of uh, well-being. Um, and we don't understand it very well because it's so complicated. It's only now that the tools are starting to appear that enable you to, in some ways, get a snapshot of what that bugging environment looks like and what might be a good buggy environment and what might be a bad, bad buggy environment. And, we're, and as you've probably heard, both in the lay press and in scientific publications, two transplants are now becoming sort of standard therapy. I mean, I haven't put my hand up for one yet. <laughs> but it, it, it's, not, it's not beyond possibility that, that as one treatment of diabetes or obesity, you get your bugs re-engineered and your food transplant or whatever. Um, the second question is absolutely true, that, that um, uh, there are classes of drugs, the new antipsychotics, or what are called the neuroantipsychotics, uh, 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 predominant amongst them, some of the HIV drugs as well, that, that cause people to put on massive amounts of weight and are tightly linked to cardiovascular disease and diabetes as part of their side effect profile. Um, and you're right, one has to be very careful uh, in looking at the risk-benefit analysis when those drugs are used. Some people can't live or have any quality of life without those drugs, and, and so that's one side of it. But, but you always want to use those drugs when you consider the potential side effects, weight gain, diabetes, and the complications of that uh, are now well known to be associated with some drugs. And, and so just quickly, Yeah, that, so that, that particular compound, the lead compound, is fixed alanine. Uh, but as I say, that's 
probably in terms of going into human clinical trials, that or a follow-on compound, an optimized compound, still about 6 to 7 years. So it, it, it's not something that's around the corner. Jacob, would you want to talk about uh, the bugs? I mean, maybe just to extend that theme a little bit more, I think what we're coming to in terms of medical advances is really we're at the cusp of being able to take a systems biology approach. And rather than talking about an individual molecule and an individual pathway, where we're getting to is our phenotype, what we are, is a mix of our genes. And every one of us here has a different set of genes. How that interacts with our environment, whether it's the food we eat in terms of calories, whether it's the type of food we eat, that's diet composition, whether it's how we move our bodies, and then the bugs that we have. And the bugs not only include bacteria and viruses, um, it also includes um, you know, bacteria on the skin, in the lungs, and that mix of all of that you know, defines your final phenotype. And I think we're now in medicine with the newer technologies that we've got. You know, everyone has heard about sequencing the gene. And we can do the same sort of thing with the human gene, with the bugs in your gut. Uh, and having large population-based studies to try and dissect gene-gene interactions, gene-environment interactions, gene-bug interactions, might actually give us a handle on how we might be able to tackle some of these diseases. But I think one of the other messages for me with this epidemic that we're talking about is that the final phenotype that makes people go to a doctor has got a long latency. So we actually start off getting overweight or obese or underactive very early in life um, in a country like this compared to Copenhagen, as Chris was talking about. And the problem is that the human body is actually designed to have a lot of redundancy. So typically, in the organ that I deal with, which is the liver, you can destroy 80% of the liver, and you can still run a marathon and do anything you choose to do. Similarly, people think they get their first episode of vascular disease when they get their heart attack. But the heart disease has been coming for 25 years beforehand, because with that unhealthy lifestyle, they're slowly building up plaque and uh, damage and narrowing of their blood vessels. And it's only that final event, which your kidney failure, your heart attack, or your eye disease. So I, I, I think it is important as a society level, while the drugs are very important, whether it's to tackle the bacteria or whether it's to tackle individual pathways, part of the solution has to be, and I'm, for me personally, I'm convinced it has to be government-centered and government-decided. So all this inner-city living that they're promoting, that actually will be good in the long term because people will actually walk to work. They're not going to be driving to work. They're not... You know, in, in, in liver disease, any time a taxi driver walks in, I know it's valid liver disease. I don't have to think about hepatitis B or C. So what we do and how we live makes a huge impact. And yes, the bugs do make a lot of impact. And there have been studies, for example, where you can take bacteria, uh, do a poo transplant from an overweight person to a thin mice, and thin mice get fat. You can take the poo from a thin mice and put it on a fat mice, and the fat mice lose weight. Um, so there's all sorts of very, very interesting data that's coming up about the microbiome and how it actually interferes. But we also need to think about the fact that you change your microbiome, but if you're still eating the same rubbish and you're still not exercising, things are going to get back to where they were before. All right, so, so yeah, just a couple more questions, then I'll get Jake to talk a little bit more specifically about the liver. Can you talk anything about the new um, injection once a week? So you're talking about something called Vigerian, which is Xenotide. Um, so that's already available as Bietta, which is a twice-a-day injection. 
Right? So it's actually, so that's not new, but it becomes more convenient that you can do it once a week. And they've just changed the format to give it because previously you had to draw it up in a vial, but now it's independent, so it's not easy to administer. So that's come on to PBS. So that, that's the new change. But it's not a, a new drug. It's been around for a while. And that's when the GLP-1 agonist that we've been talking about. That may help with modest weight loss, uh, but also increase glycemic control. Yeah, so, so reformulation of an existing drug to make it more convenient is the answer to that one. Sorry, other question I saw over here? Yeah, I was just wondering um, what policy challenges you saw in the development of weight loss drugs. I mean, particularly given that it is the holy grail of the pharmaceutical industry. Like, if one, particularly if one company has a patent and there's only one drug for a very long period of time, I mean, how does that, how does that interact with government and with, you know, no, it, it interacts very, very, very simply. Uh, they just hold the government to ransom. <laughs> so the new hepatitis C drugs... There was quite a delay in listing, and that was argy-bargy between the federal government that owns the pharmaceutical benefit scheme and the companies selling the drugs. The companies wanted to sell the drugs for $100,000. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, they geo-price. They sell the same drug into Egypt for $700. So no, nobody can pay $100,000. So, you know, there's, it's, it's once company, so the most patentable thing in the world is a drug molecule. And there's a reason for that. There's a big lobby group to make sure that drug molecules are highly patentable. Genes, not so patentable anymore. Other things, not so patentable. But drug molecules, highly patentable. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if you own the only drug in class or you own the best drug in class, uh, you're in a strong bargaining position. They know it. Um, and it does, does cause delay in listing of really important and essential medications. It's an area that I'm heavily involved in, drug regulation, um, and some interesting marketing practices as well, as you're probably aware of. Uh, so, uh, still, uh, it is a competitive industry, and it usually doesn't take too long for somebody else to come up with uh, 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 a, com a competitor. And that's happened, for example, with the new C drugs, it's happened with most, most other drug classes. So there's usually a, a period of maybe two or three years where a company may have market dominance, but it's competitive and it usually doesn't last long. Mm. Jacob, do you want to speak a little bit about the, the liver? Or? I mean, very briefly, just echoing what I was previously saying, liver disease, like all the consequences of um, an unhealthy lifestyle, it takes quite a long time to establish. So the genesis is very early, but today in Australia, one in three people have fatty liver disease. In other words, you know, you look at a liver under a microscope, they've got excess fat. And essentially what we know is that once you get, um, conceptually, um, the way I talk to patients and tell them is that God designed us to have fat under the skin. And he designed us to have fat under the skin so that we have an energy store in times of starvation. Whereas in visceral tissue, in other words, anything internal, whether it's your liver, your kidney, your pancreas, your blood vessels, you're not meant to have fat. And so when you have excess nutrition relative to how much you spend, then what happens is that you get visceral adiposity. In other words, it goes into your organs. And very, very simply, when fat's in a place where it shouldn't be, it gives you the exact same process as when you put a nail outside. You put a nail outside, it rusts. Or you put potato chips outside and potato chips get soggy. Or your apple, you cut it and it goes brown. That's oxidation which you learnt in chemistry. And it's just mixing of oxygen with, with, the, um, with the compound. So what, what happens when you get fat in a place where it shouldn't be, such as the liver? You get oxidation or a slow rusting of the liver. You go for 25 years, you don't have any symptoms, you can do anything you want, and then basically, un unfortunately, with liver disease, once you get symptoms, it's a very quick ride to multiple hospital admissions. So unlike a heart attack where someone is here one day and they're gone the next, um, with liver disease, once they get to the stage where they're getting symptoms, they have sort of very poor quality of life for the remaining three to five years of life. So really, uh, at least at present, 
we're telling people, and the liver just essentially gets scarred. So nothing can get through it, it can't metabolize uh, chemicals properly. And once that happens, it's very difficult. So really, prevention of liver disease is a very key component. And we don't have a drug that works. Uh, even scarier, perhaps, than that, is when you do a liver biopsy on somebody with fatty liver disease and look at it under the microscope, it's exactly the same as alcohol. So when you look at the liver, uh, unless you know the background of the patient, you can't tell whether this is due to overweight, diabetes, or whether they're drinking a bottle of vodka a day. It's the same. So interesting, the, the, the pattern of liver injury is very, very parallel to that. Uh, and uh, I don't know, uh, it's, it's got a lot in common, hasn't it? We actually call it non, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, just to distinguish, because uh, uh, the liver looks very much the same and undertakes the same sort of damage as a heavy drinker. Uh, and that's just simply to uh, wait. Um, and uh, not necessarily, you don't have to have a diabetic blood sugar. I think that's another concept that, that people get very confused. My blood sugar is normal, I can't be diabetic. Well, there is such a thing, and maybe I can address it, it's pre-diabetes where the body is responding, that, that blood sugar is starting to go up, the body responds. How does the body respond? By secreting more of the hormone that keeps sugar down. That's insulin, all right? And so the body keeps making more insulin to cope with the tendency for, to, for blood sugar to rise as being a bit fatter. And then a couple of things happen. All that insulin tells the body to do really weird things, like store fat energy in the liver, store fat in the liver. And the poor cells that make the insulin, the beta cells, and the islets of the pancreas, they wear out. And then you move to a different stage. You move to a stage of low insulin, very high blood sugar. It's very much like type 1 diabetes. So why do you want to talk a little bit, or also get to talk a bit later about um, <laughs> the challenges of running the diabetes service in Western Sydney, uh, but a little bit about pre-diabetes? Um, sure, Chris. Um, so I guess if you think, think about diabetes, maybe if you think of it as a pyramid, so not this. And, and at the at the bottom period we have obesity. Above that we have pre-diabetes. Then we have diabetes at the very tip. We have what you might call end-stage diabetes, diabetes of complications. So Jermaine's probably seeing people at the very tip here. Um, Jacob sees people with NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is probably somewhere around the middle, near, mostly around about the pre-diabetes to diabetes stage. Uh, and then the vast majority of people who are at risk but not yet pre-diabetic will be at the bottom. Um, now, the, the OSDIAB study, which was done around 2000, showed that in Australia, around about 7.4% of people had diabetes, around about 15% had pre-diabetes. We're now 16 years down the track, and I think the numbers are going to be a bit worse than that. Um, in my, my clinic, I mean, I, I, I actually specialize in diabetes and pregnancy. Um, just to give you an idea of how the diabetes epidemic is affecting us, I used to, we used to see about 300 clinic visits for gestational diabetes every year. We're now doing about 3,500 uh, 13 years later. So it's increased tenfold in 13 years, um, which is a huge increase. And that, that's reflected in all sorts of diabetes. So GDM is just one subpopulation of those people with, with diabetes. There was a question earlier on about uh, how do we prioritize uh, drug treatments and you know, funding, policy, all that sort of stuff. And when you look at the pyramid, the people at the top are very expensive to look after. I'm not saying we should look after them, but they're very expensive. People at the bottom, much cheaper to, to generate interventions that might help. And so at the bottom, we've already you know, heard from Jacob that we need to change um, our environment, um, have people exercise more, uh, have a healthier food environment. And those sorts of public health interventions are relatively cheap, affect a lot of people, don't just help diabetes, it helps with almost everything, really, so it's a healthy lifestyle. By the time you get to the top, it, it's very expensive to have people. So I guess in terms of public policy, one of the things is trying to keep people down the bottom end of that pyramid and not have people progress up the pyramid to the very top. Um, I know they want me to talk about some of the things we're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so we'll do that now. So, so um, yeah, as, I, as I've intimated, you know, we're, we're being flooded by people with diabetes in the clinics, and we really just can't look after everybody. Um, so one thing we're trying to do is to, uh, for people who are in the middle of the pyramid, say with pre-diabetes, 
we're trying to get them to see the general practitioner more than coming to the hospital. And so the general practitioner can look after these people. We can get the uh, people to participate in healthy um, living programs. There are actually a number of interventions around um, supported by New South Wales Health, such as Get Healthy. So these are programs to help people uh, look after their weight, reduce the risk of getting diabetes, and if they have diabetes, to help them uh, manage it at a relatively early stage. Um, we're also encouraging GPs to look after people with uh, relatively early diabetes, so they don't have to come up to the hospital. And we reserve the hospital services for people who are much further up the pyramid, so the ones who need the highly specialized uh, diabetes care. And so we're, we're busy tailoring the intervention here, I guess, to what stage of the pyramid people are at. Um, but, you know, like Jake, I believe that we should focus as much of our energy than the very bottom of the pyramid, where you can have the biggest bang for your buck and affect a lot more people in a positive way. Before we get on to some of the more way out there topics, and there's a couple I want to cover. Any questions for Laura about um, diabetic services um, uh, or questions about you know, the diagnosis or management of diabetes itself as opposed to the liver or the renal complications? Yeah. Just, uh, just a curi- out of curiosity, how important do you think it is, especially with think Jacob said, that a lot of the... Um, uh, a lot of the sort of um, there's a lot of things that lead up to becoming diabetic or becoming fatty liver disease. How important is it, do you think for people that are ostensibly healthy to track their um, you know certain data about themselves, say their blood glucose, so they can sort of you know lead a more data driven sort of healthy lifestyle? So, so how do how do people know whether they're going up the pyramid? I guess uh, so they can respond appropriately. Yeah. So if we if we focus on diabetes. Yeah, so, um, uh, so you can do your own blood glucose testing, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, and so that's one thing we encourage people to do. And so that, that's supported in Australia by National Diabetes Services Scheme. So we heavily subsidise testing strips in, in this country. So that's been drained back a bit, because uh, for those of you who have diabetes, you'll know that uh, there have been some changes in terms of access to testing strips. But certainly that's one way of, of tracking how, how you're going. Um, the other thing is coming back to HbA1c. So um, you should get an HbA1c if you have diabetes every three to six months, depending on how well controlled things are. Uh, and that's another metric we look at. Um, now, the, the other really interesting area that I'm um, sort of, uh, doing a bit of work on is coming back to what Jermaine talked about, which are apps uh, and Fitbit. So I've got my little Fitbit here. Uh, oh, actually, I've left it off the first time in about a year. It's, it's out of charge this morning. I haven't got it on yet. But, um, but I think that they're actually, you know, they're helpful devices because you can track your exercise. Um, now, there, there's some data that people who get Fitbit stop using them after about three months, and that, that's quite common. But for those who persist, it, it, it's a valuable tool. Um, not sure exactly how useful it is in the population because generally the people who are using are the ones who are converted anyway. They're probably the ones who will do the exercise. Um, but um, certainly we're doing some work there, um, and we're, you know, we're, we're doing some studies, in fact, which we to see if they help with people's motivations because they can track what they're doing. So, Jermaine, did you want to add anything to wearable devices and apps? Oh, well, uh, personally, I'm not a biggest fan of Fitbit, but um, I, I do agree that some of these um, interactive apps does work, um, similar to why we're also running a several interesting studies looking at a combination of dietary and um, exercise intervention for people with end-stage kidney disease. So these are people who are on dialysis. They have erratic um, chemicals in their body, so some days they have high potassium level, which can cause significant um, cardiac arrhythmia and die, um, for which dietary intervention is very important. At the same time, a lot of them are also diabetics um, who may be overweight, um, so the combination is very complex in a dietary intervention in our dialysis patient is very complex. So um, with this little intervention that we have, um, we're hopeful that it may work in certain groups. Um, it may not work. It's, as I said before, it's very difficult to change one's behaviour, um, particularly sustainable change in behavioural um, behaviour. Maybe I'm being a bit facetious, but I think more than a drug for obesity, we need a drug for discipline. Because really, the, the way humans work, immediate gratification, that big meat pie or the big chocolate pie, and really, 
what separates the guys who do regular physical activity or monitor their diet? It's actually discipline. They can actually stop themselves or they can go, you know, I've started, you know, I could never exercise when I was at uni and the last few years I've been exercising. Now I've got to the stage where essentially if I don't do it five times a week, I'm feeling really guilty. And so you develop the, the discipline. If you had a drug for discipline, yeah, you really do quite a lot. It'd be helpful with child rearing as well. Okay, so so there, there, there's another side to this, which which is a bit spooky and potentially really dangerous, and that's uh, uh, epigenetic inheritance. So uh, I'll get the panel to talk a little bit about this. I mean, it, it's an area that's still being explored. But it's interesting that we not only pass on our genes, but we pass on the regulation of our genes. There's quite good evidence for this now. Epigenetic modification has to do with changes to your genome, particularly methylation patterns. And, and it, it, certainly in animal studies, and I think there's increasing evidence in humans, that if you're overweight, you pass on changes in your gene regulation to your job, which makes them more likely to be overweight, which has nothing to do with lifestyle. All right? The genes which are turned on and turned off have been altered, and that alteration is inherited. The genes themselves don't change, but the switches that control the genes being turned on and turned off have been modified, largely by changes like, like methylation. Without going too much into the science, there's evidence for that. Does anybody want to talk about that? The way, whether how we pass on um, risks of disease to offspring. Yeah. So as I said, I, I do a lot of work in diabetes and pregnancy. So a lot there's a lot of literature now that uh, tells us that people who uh, have high blood sugar levels during pregnancy will pass on the risk to their offspring. And so, in fact, the, the, the literature around Reggie started looking at low birth weight, so it was actually the opposite. So if the mother is uh, starving, such as in a wartime situation, or if she has an overabundance of nutrition, so both ends of the spectrum, you end up programming the child to a, what we call a more diabetogenic phenotype. So the child is at high risk of obesity, coronary disease, diabetes. Um, and so... Uh, when we now, when we talk to people with diabetes and pregnancy now, we, we talk about how the high sugar may cause harm to the pregnancy, but we very much focus also on potential harm to the child in the long term, in that the, the offspring would be at high risk of getting diabetes. And Mark McLean, who's at uh, Blacktown and myself, we've done some studies looking at gestational diabetes, and so what we've found is that um, uh, uh, women whose mothers had diabetes or gestational diabetes were actually more likely to get gestational diabetes themselves. So it seems like that risk has been passed on. It's not just purely genetic risk, it's actually exposure during pregnancy that increases your risk. And I have to thank Warra actually for standing in for Mark McLean, who was one of our speakers tonight, who got caught up in a family emergency. So thank you, Warra, for passing on your experience. So, so it's interesting that this isn't a problem just for the current generation, but for the reasons that we've just been discussing, we can actually pass the risk on to a subsequent generation. Um, and diabetes in pregnancy is a good example of that. Um, I guess one area that people continually read about, it, it gets a lot of lay press, is stem cell research. Uh, I've been involved in some research in creating uh, insulin-producing cells, beta-rhylic cells, that actually respond to glucose. Um, anybody got any thoughts on, on uh, I guess, islet transplantation? It's one way of uh, coping with uh, um, uh, the problem. Uh, but also uh, stem cell therapies and where they might be getting. So we take people with terrible diabetes and, and uh, we restore their ability to make insulin. Uh, that's really much more for type 1 diabetes than type 2 diabetes. And stage type 2? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure that there's much clinical work going on in that area. Uh, and by, by the time you have end stage type 2, you have a lot of other things happening. So your, the benefit may be really much less. But certainly for type 1 diabetes, that is the whole world. Mm-hmm. So to, to be able to uh, have functioning islets either from stem cells or from transplants. And so you know at Westmead we do have uh, the transplant, in fact, Doreen, you should talk about this, the, the islet cell transplant. Mm-hmm. You, you want to? 
transplant for the type 1 diabetics and um, we not as well as the uh, kidney pancreas simultaneous kidney transplant which is a whole organ of both the kidney and the pancreas at the same time we're doing a lot of research work in terms of islet um, it, it basically it doesn't cure you from having diabetes from the islet transplant it certainly improved the regulation of your sugar level particularly for type 1 diabetes with um, significant hypoglycemia where they are not really able to detect um, hypoglycemic episodes, but um, that's an emerging field. Um, currently, that's a very good example of how the work that we've been done at Westmead, research work being translated into direct clinical surface, and that's been a success um, so far. Thanks, Jermaine. Uh, thanks a lot. I'll just open it up again for more questions from the audience and then to sort of finish up tonight I might just get each panel member to just say a couple of things about, you know, if they were God uh, or if they controlled the federal budget, uh, what, they, what they would do. So I'll question I've had diabetes long enough to have experienced some strange things. And one of them was that I occasionally would wake up at about 3am in the morning and read my blood sugars and get the reading. Um, so I get the reading at about 3am and, um, and then when I woke up normally for the normal day, sort of about 7 or 8, I would read it again and the reading then would be higher than the reading at 3am, although I had not eaten between 3am and 7. <laughs> Yeah, so it actually affects the organ that these two are the experts in. So when, when, um, in the morning, your body actually makes sugar. Right? And so that's what we call hepatic gluconeogenesis, so you release sugar from the primarily the liver. And it's thought that uh, it comes from the days when we had to go hunting in the morning. So we need a burst of sugar to give us some energy to go off and you know, hunt woolly mammoths, etc. Um, but when you have diabetes, you actually don't produce the insulin to process that sugar appropriately, and so your sugar levels stay up. And so that, that's quite common to see that the reading can be higher when you get up than what it was last night. So to give you an idea, your liver weight can increase by 10, 20, and 30% as it stores sugar. So it stores sugar as a polymer of glucose. So it's lots of glucose molecules joined together, like a plastic made of glucose. Uh, and that's the way your liver uh, uh, stores sugar, and then it releases it as it needs to. And there are hormonal changes, as we're saying, in the early morning, rising serum cortisols and things like that, that tell the, 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 the liver that, oh, it's nearly wake up time, and I'm, the muscles are going to need sugar, and the heart's going to need sugar, that actually releases sugar into the circulation. So it's a buffer mechanism. So not unusual. No, you, it's working right. Yeah. <laughs> it's very it's working. Question. It's working as it should. All right, so any other questions before we get the panel members to sum up? Yep, just one in the back there. Um, I was going to talk, it's a bit later now, but I was going to talk about, there's a lot of talk about the different drugs for diabetes, a lot of talk about the different drugs for obesity. Um, I haven't heard of any drugs that actually look at reversing diabetes. Um, but yeah, going back to what Jermaine was saying, isn't the money better spent instead of the PBS looking for the Holy Grail is putting money into cognitive behavioural change and diet exercise? Because I mean, you've said all night that it's the, the biggest wedge, the cheapest option. Um, what's happening as far as as far as that's concerned. Yeah, look, I, I think that's fairly easy to answer. That, that, that we would all agree that money spent on preventing disease is very useful, but it takes a generation for that to impact on the health of the society. So, so if we now go into <laughs> cycleways and re-urban design where we go back into more inner-city living, where we actually live close to our work, we walk or we cycle all these things, the effect is going to be very delayed. What happens to all the people that already have the disease? So, so, all right, so we'll, we'll get to, if I was God, what I would do in a, a minute. 
but, but um, can you imagine the reaction if we said, well, we're actually going to stop PBS, no, no more subsidy for any diabetic medication. If you're diabetic, bad luck, we're going to spend all that money on building cycleways or whatever. I'm not talking about cycleways, I'm talking about education of children. You're talking about you know, this big epidemic. Yeah, uh, so we're talking about um, the problems with overweight mothers who pass on their microbiome to yeah. their children who become overweight. But, but uh, the education, the re-engineering of the, the environment in which we live are all different aspects of that. So, so the problem is for that to have an impact on the health of the society takes a long time. Stopping people smoking takes decades to have a significant impact on lung cancer because the risk goes on for some time. Does anybody want to comment on that specific question? I mean, it is very interesting about the lung cancer debate, and despite the fact that all the advertising is being done, what reduced smoking rates was increasing the taxes. That works. And so really what you're talking about is governments have to intervene at a policy level, and if you're going to do it with food and exercise, you really have to tackle the fast food companies, the ability to advertise poorly nutritious food, having making fresh food cheaper than uh, you know the fully trans fats food. Today, if you, in Australia, if you want to eat a healthy meal, it's about three times the cost of trying to eat a big mash. So those are you know only government and government handling companies and the way our society runs, which is let's just you know make money, it profits the motive. If you have a society that works on that motive, you're not going to fix the problem. So I, I don't think it's cognitive behaviour therapy. This is much more government policy and societal policy. But I mean that's assuming that people are essentially stupid, but um, I mean, today, like, when we came here, we were given meat pies as our option to eat. Um, and I think, as a health institution, this leads from within. You know, you're in charge of your small bubble, and I think by promoting this, like, down, this is how things flow. Yeah, it's a, we, we, it's a trickle down theory. That, that's an absolute excellent point. I mean, that goes back to that little barrel over there is about policy intervention. I mean, it would be ideal to have a Jamie Oliver policy as they've done in the UK where they banned every single soft drinks in the entire primary schools, where there's no sugar in added sugar in all the snacks that was given to um, kindergarten kids. These are the early intervention that we could potentially utilise in our society um, effectively. Um, yes, yeah, start from the young. Bit of discipline, isn't it, Jacob? <laughs> There are a lot of programs that are already in place um, at the so There's programs like Much and Move and Live Life Well, where the government is spending you know, millions of dollars in, in these um, early intervention programs. But like you said earlier, it takes a, a number of years for, for some of these to be seen. But there are some really exciting programs that are in place at the moment. So, but it's not really tackling, I mean, all these intervention programs. Obesity rates in the US, they thought were going to plateau at 30%. They're all, three years ago, they were saying, why is obesity rates plateau? And lo and behold, now it's 40%. Um, so I'm not convinced, unless you tackle big money, it's going to be very hard. I have a quick question. I don't want to digress too much, and I know it's in the end of the evening. But I'm really interested um, in the potential correlation between um, genetically modified food because um, a relative of mine who is an academic um, said that um, she noticed an exact increase in worldwide obesity um, rates around the time that genetically modified food was introduced. Do you have any opinion on that? Yeah, the, the problem is with, within, when two things occur in the same time frame is whether they're actually related. Mm -hmm. Alright, so the uh, the, the Increasing the obesity rates are pretty well the same across most countries where, where the food and the types of food are unregulated. Um, and that's probably independent of the use of genetically modified crops uh, and the like. So my, my feeling would be they're occurring at the same time rather than being related. Do you know what I mean? 
they basically exhaust the kids so they can't get up to trouble. So you know, they, they do lessons all day. Then they have sport and they run them ragged. So at seven o'clock they're all asleep. They can't get up to no good. So so you know, exercise has many beneficial effects. So uh, thanks, Chris. Look, I don't I don't think the solution is for me to be God, but really what we as a group have to do is to have a voice and lobby the politicians and tell them what we really want, which is to have a healthier environment, for them to prioritise that and invest in a healthy environment. And so that's what we have to do. We have, you know, at the moment, it's not a big enough priority for them to invest adequately there, but we have to get that message to the politicians. So on that note, thank you everybody for attending tonight. I hope you found it informative. I hope you found it useful. And thank you to the uh, panel members for inviting you.